The security of your crypto has been under fire the last couple of weeks with the drama around Ledger, uh, with Trezor Model T. Apparently, people have found a way to physically access that device as well. Uh, and so it's been an exciting world. My name is Vanessa. You're here at Just Crypto. And we are blessed to be joined today by Zach Herberts, who's the CEO and founder of Foundation. Uh, Foundation builds Bitcoin-centric tools that empower you to reclaim your digital sovereignty. Uh, Zach, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Vanessa. Yeah, it's fantastic that you're here. Uh, just for um, folks who are here, as always, uh, here on the show, we're about learning, not FOMO. Nothing is financial advice. Neither Zach nor I are financial advisors. So uh, please keep that in mind as we go through this conversation. Um, the other thing that we love to do here is if you are in chat, um, just pop a hi. Let us know that you're here. We will take questions, comments as we go through as well. Um, so let's get started and learn a little bit more about you, Zach, before we dive into the topic of the hour. Um, sure. can, can you share your journey into crypto and kind of how you found your way into crypto, how you found your way into, you know, uh, owning and founding a company? Uh, in crypto? Definitely. Yeah. So this is my um, end of this year is going to be my 10th year owning Bitcoin, which is uh, fun, <laughs> a fun milestone. So um, I have always been obsessed with product design and uh, you know, that kind of thing. I am a mechanical engineer um, by educational background. And I learned about Bitcoin um, in my, I think it was like my junior or senior year of uh, college. Um, it's just a friend in the dining hall was telling me about it. And so I uh, gave him a $20 bill and uh, opened a Coinbase account when they were giving $10 or whatever, you know, free of Bitcoin a long time ago. Uh, and so we can both get the, uh, the referral, you know, bonus and the rest was history. So um, I originally got into Bitcoin um, more just for the, you know, investment side of things, the number go up. Um, I was not really philosophically aligned at all back then in terms of, you know, libertarian values or cypherpunk values or sovereignty or privacy. I didn't really know about any of that kind of stuff. Uh, but, you know, over the years of getting exposed to all the different content, um, you know, back then Reddit and, and Twitter and podcasts and books and so on, you know, I really became more of a, what I would call, you know, like a sovereign individual, um, with a foot in both worlds. I think, uh, you know, I, I was, I was started in, in business school and was going the more, you know, formal like business school route, but I also was getting more and more, you know, into Bitcoin and falling down the rabbit hole. So I actually uh, dropped out of, of business school in uh, 2016 um, to, or it might have been 2017 when I actually dropped out, but to, to join a company uh, in the crypto space uh, called, uh, that was Saya, Saya Coin. I'm not sure if it's really still around, but it was like a decentralized cloud storage project. Um, wow, that's jogging some old memories for me. <laughs> yeah, so that was a long time ago. But what I ended up actually working on mostly was um, a subsidiary we launched called Obelisk that was building um, ASIC mining hardware, uh, which two of those old units are behind me. So, you know, I ended up joining that company as like the second, the second employee and just learning how to build and ship hardware in a very high pressure environment between 2017, 2018. Um and that was my real exposure to like practical work in the space and actually having a job in the space. You know, before that, I, I sold hardware wallets on Open Bazaar, I think in like 2016, 2015, which was a, like one of the original, if not the original, like decentralized eBay powered by Bitcoin, which is I don't think is around anymore. 
Um, so I, you know, I've been, I've been using all these devices. I was building hardware, but then, you know, I, I decided and a couple of my team members, uh, decided that we really want to be founders. You know, we really want to start our own company. And I just been thinking so much more about hardware wallets. Um, in 2019, there was a fantastic podcast on Stefan Levera, uh, with a Bitcoiner named Michael Flaxman. And I think it was titled, you could still listen to the podcast. It was called something like, like why every Bitcoin hardware wallet sucks or something like that. <laughs> so I listened to the podcast and, you know, they were yearning for things like, you know, um, obviously fully open source, which has become very important, especially amongst this ledger stuff. I'm sure we'll have plenty of time to talk about that. Um, QR codes and air gapped, which I thought was really interesting um, and a bunch of other things. And I thought like, I, I can make that like that. That sounds, you know, it sounds doable. And so um, I and a few of my teammates, uh, quit our jobs and started foundation in March of 2020. Uh, and, and so the rest is, is history. Now we're almost 20 people on the team. Um, you know, we've raised uh, over $10 million of venture capital. We've shipped thousands of our, our passport hardware wallets. And, you know, we're also now moving more into the mobile app side as well to go with that. So a lot has happened over <laughs> the last few years. So I think yeah, that's we'll, probably a good overview. Yeah, we'll definitely get a chance to, to dig into all of those things around open source, around, uh, you know, the passport wallet and, and the mobile wallet that you have. Uh, but I'm curious, before we go there, you mentioned, uh, you know, sovereign, sovereign individual. Uh, for <laughs> you, what does it mean to be a sovereign individual? I think it means just having that, that control over your own life, your own destiny. It sounds kind of corny, but like knowing that you're not relying on, on third parties. And obviously we're all relying on third parties for lots of things, but knowing that you have that ability to, to do basic things, some of the, maybe the most important things for yourself, like storing your own money, for example, I think is a huge one. Um, you know, being able to give yourself privacy, um, if, if you want to, right. Uh, and I think right now everyone is so used to having everything taken care of, uh, like everything is taken care of for them, right? You have your, your money in a bank, you, you just trust all your, you know, uh, Gmail and all your providers with everything, right? You don't really have any kind of privacy or freedom or anything like that. And so, you know, I think, I think it, anyone who, who is in the space long enough ends up, I think, moving more and more towards that, um, that sovereignty route. Yeah, I think as we start to see, uh, you know, Western liberal governments using the push of a button to take people's money away and disable their bank accounts. For me, it was a wake up call. So, you know, very much uh, appreciate that in the space. Yeah. And I even I mean, the, like the Canadian trucker stuff was even a wake up call for me, even being in the space for so long. <laughs> um, you know, it's it it's kind of you, you think about or you hear about that kind of thing happening elsewhere in the world, maybe in, you know, more unstable regions or countries, but in Canada, you know, in a, in a Western country. And so seeing that was also a wake up call for us in terms of the product development and the product roadmap, because, you know, reading and, and listening how, you know, um, different groups tried to donate Bitcoin to the truckers and what they ended up having to do ultimately was like print out paper wallets and distribute them because the tools that they were using, were so inaccessible still, I think, to like the, you know, the, the common, the common, you know, uh, common cell phone user, right? And so I'm sure that's something we can talk about as well today. 
Yeah, fantastic. Well, let's actually start with uh, the the drama that's going on because I'm sure everyone's curious about sure. your thoughts on on Ledger. Uh, you know, I saw that the foundation uh, Twitter tweeted a pretty provocative, huge shout out to the amazing marketing team at Ledger. <laughs> <laughs> so definitely not shying away from it, but no. uh, you know, I'd love to get your thoughts on you know what what Ledger's done, um, how they responded to it. I think they had a recent uh, spaces. If you've had a chance to catch up on any of that, um, and just give folks kind of a lay of the land on what the drama is, how much of it is is real drama, how much of it's actually an effect on your security. Yeah, I think on some hand the drama is a little overblown, but on the other hand, I think what's happened is I think. I think what the announcement or it wasn't even an announcement. It was almost like a, it was a botched announcement of this ledger recover service. It, it was, it was um, leaked unintentionally, you know, in the uh, release notes of a new firmware update. And so I think one of the biggest mistakes ledger made is that they did not get to control the narrative and control the launch properly. So they've been scrambling. And I think what was a, PR nightmare, um, you know, ever since that, that occurred. But I think the, the summary of how I feel is that people are waking up to the challenge of closed source hardware and most ledger customers had no idea really that what happens inside of ledger is a black box and that you're fully trusting Ledger as a company, that they're not going to go do anything that you you know disagree with. Um, but in actuality, everything happening inside a Ledger device has always been a black box. You know, I, I would say that you know they've taken traditional computer security models of security via obscurity, and they've made that their product since day one. And only now are people really waking up. You know, normal people. And they have millions of customers, right? They're, they're waking up to the fact that, wait a minute, like Ledger can release an update and I install it and I don't know how it works. <laughs> so I think one of the biggest issues with the entire PR response from the Ledger side has been they haven't explained fully hmm. how Ledger Recover works. They've, they've given a lot of answers about some of, some of these details, right? But they haven't explained exactly from a technical level you know how is the encryption happening you know who holds the different keys what does ledger hold versus what do the custodians hold like we inter internally at foundation have been discussing this for you know a week now trying to figure out what are they actually doing from an, a technical architecture perspective and we still don't know and that's in my mind terrifying and i think that is maybe the bigger problem in, in my mind, it's not just about the service where they're splitting your key into three pieces and sending it out to different custodians. Right. I mean, I have issues with that specific service, but I think it's more of a problem of treating the user as, or, or the end customer as, you know, not knowledgeable enough to really just give it to them straight in terms of what's happening at a tech level than having everything so proprietary and closed source. And so I mean, I'm happy to like unpack more details of the, of the actual service, but I think to me, that's the, that is the core of the problem here. And there's been some sound bites that have been really bad, like saying, <laughs> oh, we always have the potential to ship an update that, you know, can expose your keys, you know, or that kind of thing. It's just crazy things from a PR perspective, but as much as the PR stuff has been botched, I think over the last week, 
it really comes down to the the fact that you know ledger devices are just total black boxes yeah it's interesting to me that there's almost two classes of users that that they've been targeting uh here uh, the right. first class of the, the set of people who got upset because they thought Ledger couldn't update the firmware and extract the keys. And it's mm. just this awakening moment of, what do you mean you can do that? <laughs> now, I, I think I'm more in the second camp because you know anything you can update, you can change, right? Uh, but then uh, they, they come along and say, okay, well, here's this thing. We're not gonna tell you exactly how it works. Right. And oh, by the way, um, it's not going to add any new, um, you know, attack surface to it because that, you know, you just don't understand hardware wallets. Um, and, and I think that, that, <laughs> right. that uh, for, for me, just just put me on, on the back foot saying like, hold on, I've worked in tech for 20 years. I understand mm -hmm. threat modeling. You add more code. There's another threat there. Come on, guys. Yeah. And just to defend Ledger briefly, hardware wallets are always capable of uh, or, or your hardware wallet is almost always able to, um, you know, get the seed off of the device. It shows it to you on the screen when you <laughs> set up the wallet. So there's some weird, I think the response from people has been a little overblown in terms of, you know, the seed not leaving the device. And I think one of the problems there has been it's Ledger's own marketing. They say the seed never leaves the secure element, right? Whatever that means. We could talk more about what that actually means and like the architecture that Ledger uses versus what Trezor uses versus what we and others do. But the seed always leaves your hardware wallet. It shows it to you on the screen and you can write it down. You could stamp it into metal. You know, it is leaving through text on the screen. Additionally, you know, our passport hardware wallet, um, cold card, Bitbox, you know, some of these devices have like encrypted micro SD backups. I don't know if I don't know if Bitboxes is encrypted, but like I know Colt, we and Coldcard have encrypted micro SD backups, meaning that you can take an encrypted backup of the whole device, including the seed, but it's encrypted. And then you're storing it on a micro SD card and you have a separate key to decrypt it. Okay, so so no one really takes issue with that, right? So you're you're using the power of encryption. <laughs> uh, it sounds really stupid, right? But you're using encryption, which you trust because you trust Bitcoin, right? You, you trust the encryption there. So you're going to trust the encryption as well. If you're taking like an encrypted backup of, of your seed, for example, but that micro SD card is in your control. It's not going online. So there seems to be some area where even if the seed is encrypted, if it goes online, it's a problem, but I don't even know if I could probably make a technical argument that that's even okay if you know how the architecture works, <laughs> right? You, you could probably make an argument saying, well, if it's encrypted on the device, the keys are in control of the end user and the seed goes into the cloud. As long as it was encrypted on the device before it goes into the cloud, it's probably okay though, you know, quantum computing or whatever, right? Maybe that's bad in the future, but like I could craft that argument. So I don't know if the real problem is that it's going into the cloud, though that's obviously the way they've done it with like, give your KYC info, you know, give it to these three companies. I think that's all terrible. But you, do you see what I mean about like the, the what they're actually doing? I don't think is inherently uh, or like the general idea is not inherently evil. It's just that you no one knows how it works and, and they haven't explained how the encryption works.
So maybe we could talk a little bit about the differences in how, you know, mentioned ledger, ledger, treasurer, and passport work. So people can get a sense of like at the hardware wallet level, uh, how do they work? Which are, uh, have features that are perhaps more secure than other features? And why are those features right. secure? Yes. Yeah, so let's, so let's talk about ledger first. So I think ledger was, was the first hardware wallet and they didn't even have a screen on the first device. They used like a little smart card, like a Java card. It looked like a USB stick. So from the core, Ledger's model has always been like this fully closed source proprietary, this idea of taking like the, the best in class in like the payments world, like the fiat payments world, right? Like the same kind of tech you'd find in like a, like a credit card terminal. Um, you know, all these certifications, people, you know, there's EAL five plus, you know, there's all these like tech certifications for that kind of, you know, secure hardware chips that touch um, anything credit card related. So they're taking that with a proprietary operating system. They call theirs BOLOS is, is B-O-L-O-S is the name of their proprietary operating system. And they're putting it into a device with a screen, you know, that can read out transaction details. So all the apps that run on Ledger are actually open source, like the Bitcoin app, the Ethereum app, you know, Ledger Live is open source. But the core secure operating system running on their security chip is not. It's a black box. And so you really don't know what's happening at that level. But at the same time, at the same time, you know, they are using like a... Uh, you know, what they would say a secure chip. They've partnered very closely with STM, ST Microelectronics, which is the manufacturer. So they're basically saying, we have all these certifications. We have all this know-how, trust us. Hmm. So that's the ledger model. The Trezor model is there's no hardware security at all, <laughs> which we can talk about because yet another one of these, you know, I, I don't know what you call it, a vulnerability or something, extracting the seed phrase in, in the pen from a treasure just, just took place. Um, was it today or yesterday? Yeah, um, I think it was yesterday. I know Kraken had done it a few years ago, um, yeah, but maybe a different model of treasure. No, it's the same. It's all the same thing. It's the same kind of attack. So what Trezor does is they just have a single chip on the board, another STM processor, same company, but it's not a security chip. It's just a normal processor. There's no hardware protections whatsoever. So it gives you protection from someone that would try to steal your, like it, it keeps your keys offline, which is one of the most important things a hardware wallet can do, right? It keeps your keys, you know, offline on a dedicated device. But if someone got physical access to your device, there's absolutely no security of any kind. <laughs> it was like, you, what you do is you voltage glitch it. It's the type of attack. Uh, you just have to open up the device. You attach some wires to it. You get a little breadboard or whatever. You 15 minutes or maybe less even a few minutes, some cheap hardware, less than hundred bucks worth of hardware. You uh, remove the, the lock on the processor that stops you from updating the firmware. Uh, and it's called, you take it from a state, which is called RDP2, RDP2. Uh, you bring it to RDP zero and then you can install whatever firmware you want on it. So you can just pull it, you can install malicious firmware and pull out the, the seed. Now, maybe so, people listening would say, well, that sounds really complicated. No, no attack is going to be able to do that. Uh, but 
those kind of things are being commoditized, right? That that kind of equipment. Yeah, they have been. I mean, you could put on like um, you could put on like a secure passphrase, right? You could you could use like a six plus word passphrase, something with high enough, you know, uh, don't don't make like hodl your passphrase, right? <laughs> like which I did when I first used the Trezor. I had I used it was more for plausible deniability, right? Um. But the reason they do that, they say, is because they want every single thing to be open source. They don't want to use anything that requires an NDA or anything like that. So they don't use any type of security chip that we would call like a secure element. Um, and so the trade-off when you buy a Trezor is like you have no physical security. So if someone finds your device and you don't use a strong passphrase, they can pull your seed right off of it. So lock that thing up in a safe or something. But most customers, I mean, I don't know what you think, but like, do you think most Trezor customers realize this, you know, it's like, absolutely yeah. not. So the conversations I've been having on Twitter, people are asking me like, Oh, so, you know, if, if Ledger's got potential issues, what do I, what do I do? And they always suggest Trezor. I'm like, hold on, <laughs> you need to realize there's a different threat, right? The threat isn't the closed source. They've, they've done pretty good at the open source, but uh, you know, your $5 range attack uh, and, and someone has your Trezor and it's game over. Um, exactly. Or even not $5 wrench attack. I mean, just someone, you know, robs your house or, sees it in your backpack and grabs it and <laughs> runs, right? I mean, you better move those funds fast before they can do this kind of attack. But it's so sad that that is the state of the two major players. You have one that, I mean, to Ledger's credit, has not had any real serious hardware vulnerability, right? Like, want to give them full yeah. credit. Like, their security team is top-notch. They have that Donjon team, which is like their security research team. They're constantly finding vulnerabilities like advanced vulnerabilities in different hardware wallets not like simple stuff and on the other hand well but i should say but like fully proprietary closed source which i don't and i don't think we could talk about principles and stuff but i don't think ledger's principles as a company and values align with that of the bitcoin the crypto space expand on that a little bit because I, yeah. I think they maybe don't get it uh, and they think they're aligned with crypto. Where are they missing the mark? I mean, when I think about like sovereignty, let, let's start with um, sovereignty and privacy. As things. Well, you talk a lot about privacy, right? Um, I saw a copy of their funding deck from like a year and a half ago. And in like the first slide of their funding deck, they brag about exactly how much Bitcoin and ETH is stored on Ledger devices. Mm -hmm. Why do they know that? You know, like we, we on our hardware and software, we don't want to know anything about you. We give you the option to connect via Tor. We don't collect XPubs, right? What we, we run, uh, I guess it's harder on the, on the Ethereum side, right? Because your address is just like all your money. But at least on the Bitcoin side with the UTXO model, we just we just collect, a, you know, if, if you use our server and you're more than welcome to use a node or whatever, we're only getting like addresses one at a time and we're not logging any data. Like if, if anyone asked us like how much Bitcoin is stored on passports, I would tell you like, I have no idea and I don't want to know. <laughs> but they have, they have customer data that they were not purging, right? We purge customer data after 60 days. They had that crazy hack a few years ago where they all their customer data gone, including names, uh, email addresses, physical mailing addresses. All of that is logged. 
the, the thing right. which surprised me about that was I mm. thought they were using a mail service like MailChimp, but no, it was their own team that built their own database that got that got hacked. So it was like a custom built piece of software. Yes. Yeah, so there's that aspect to it. But Ledger Live is collecting all the IP addresses and they're tracking how much crypto is stored on Ledger devices. That's insane. But then you could tell they really don't care about the privacy aspect because look at this new service they're trying to launch, Recover. They want, they want your KYC details in addition to all the other stuff they have. They want you to upload your, your, your physical passport, like a photo of it, in order to authenticate. That runs counter to this entire, you know, sovereign individual narrative. You're not supposed. I thought the whole point was that keys were supposed to like replace that traditional identity, not that you were supposed to use your your KYC identity to access your crypto. Just to, it's just like the opposite of what I would expect. This does, is does actually sense in terms of like values and yeah. Yeah, it's a, this is actually the first time I've heard uh, someone talk about the the ethos. You know, independent of all the security issues, I think we've been talking about potential security concerns for you know two weeks now. Uh, but the fact that they're even <laughs> launching a service like this, which from a you know Web two perspective would seem great, right? You're meeting a customer need. Uh, you've got some great KPIs. My KPI is how much crypto is on my devices, uh, and yet the, the the ethos is is lost, and you're kind of missing the point that that's not there. So I think it's a very good point that people need to be aware of. And that ethos permeates every decision within the company, right? It, it, about how to store customer data, about what kinds of value-add services to offer. I know they've done things like insurance and credit cards. Like these are all very like web two <laughs> products, right? That require like collecting identity and other information. It also permeates, um, well, it, it permeates the hardware philosophy, the idea of using the very closed source proprietary tech from the traditional payments industry and bringing that to the Bitcoin and crypto space. It, it's like every aspect of the company. It, I mean, and then I tweeted the other day, which I probably shouldn't have done about, um, you know, the, the, the ledger CEO at the world economic forum back in 2020, a lot of the, sovereignty minded people do not like that, that, that world economic forum vision. Um, you know, you'll own nothing and be happy, you know, uh, 15 minute cities, um, all that dystopian, what I would call dystopian type stuff. Yet ledger CEO is there speaking and talking about how proud he is to be there and work closely with the governments. And I'm like, <laughs> like <laughs> this is counter to, the entire ethos of the space. So that's, that's, I think it's a really important point that, that people have to understand. I think just, you know, in my mind, as you've mentioned it now, I'm kind of going back and, and thinking about some of the things that their CEO was talking about. Like one thing he said was, you know, subpoenas are no big deal. They're only, you know, yes. given if it's, you know, a really bad person who's committed a, a crime, a terrorist to someone. And I think, wow, that's that's not adversarial enough for my taste, uh, for sure. Um, you know, he needs to treat all of these entities as uh, adversaries, not as partners necessarily. Yeah, I mean, if you think about... um. And Seth for Privacy, who's on our team, he's our he's our head of content, has had some great takes about this over the last week or so. But we just mentioned in the very beginning of the conversation, like the Canadian truckers. 
I mean, what what what's this? What are they going to do? Just go to go to Ledger and say, I mean, they don't have to go to the other custodial custodial providers. They could just go to Ledger. It's Ledger's app that lets you access and download, you know, your your three different shards. It's Ledger's app that, you know, at least my understanding, it, it, you know, collects your, you know, they want a picture of your passport, not our passport, right? Your, your physical passport. There's That's an interesting campaign there. But threat, um, threat because the Canadian government could say, great, we're going to be one of the shard providers. Update your software. So there's now four shards, two or four, right? One is Ledger. Or do business in Canada, right? Or yeah. Or, or it's probably even easier if, if the custodian is in your is is domiciled in your country. So, I mean, you see where this is going, but it just runs counter to, you know, runs counter to my personal philosophy. Like, I just, I don't understand how. I mean, I do understand, but I don't understand how, you know, a, a, the longest term, the first hardware wallet maker, could, like, this is how they see the world. It's just, it's. It's very confusing to me. So let's let's contrast Passport from a, a technical perspective and then Foundation from an ethos perspective with some of this. So, uh, you know, compare uh, Passport to Treasurer and Ledger and, you know, where it's ad security and perhaps where, you you know, you still have some work to do. Yeah, I mean, we're very early in our journey, firstly, but uh, I think we've come a long way so far. So this is this is Passport. You know, you can definitely read about it and learn more on our website, but it is it is a Bitcoin only hardware wallet. It's um it's air gapped, meaning it uses a camera and QR codes actually to send transactions. I know you spoke with the with the Keystone um you know founder uh, a few days ago. Um so similar in terms of that with the camera and QR codes. I think what's cool about Passport is our um hardcore open source ethos. Um everything is open source even down to like the circuit board design files. We're one of the only ones, you know, that actually do that. Meaning that you can go on our GitHub and you can like down everything, the firmware, full all the firmware, not a single piece of code, right? You could you could build the firmware from source. It's all reproducible. You can verify it yourself. You know, the circuit board, the CAD files for the enclosure, it's all on our GitHub. What's amazing about that is that it's security via openness, not security mm -hmm. via obscurity. And we have, I think I would, I would, I'm biased, but I would argue that we have maybe the best, if not some of the best design talent of any, you know, company in the space in terms of the beautiful hardware design, uh, the, the whole um, user experience and the user interface for the device, the way it works with our mobile companion app, which is called Envoy and everything just works in an air gapped way, but everything's fully open source. It's really easy to use. It actually like resembles like a, like an old school. Yeah, hold it up closer to the camera. Cause it does yeah. look like a beautiful device compared to. Yeah. It's really yeah. beautiful. It um, full color IPS display, really high resolution, uh, ultra hard glass, you know, can't even really scratch it with a knife. Uh, the body is um, it's a zinc alloy plated in. Oh, I had a little label in there, but it's zinc alloy plated in real copper. Um, it uses a lithium ion battery, but it's a standard Nokia style form factor. So you can buy it on Amazon if you want. I mean, we custom, you know, label it, but it uses a uh, power only USB port. So there's only pins for power that's specifically for charging the battery. And we have the camera and we have the micro SD card slot on top. So it's a really intuitive device. I mean, one of the things I like to say is, Bitcoin is already hard enough to use, so you shouldn't have to learn to use your hardware wallet. If you've ever, ever tried entering your pin in on like a um, 
you know, a ledger device with just your two buttons. It's, it's brutal. You know, it's absolutely brutal. And this is just like, it's all about design and, and ease of use, but then also, like I said, having the hardcore security and open source source ethos. So we do have a secure element on passport, but we use it similar to how cold card and Bitbox use theirs. So we're not like the pioneers of this model, but I think it's a great model where we use the secure element only for a couple things. One is for the secure key storage slots. We store a little piece of a key, like a key on there. It's not your whole seed. It's like a piece of your seed. You can think of it. And it's stored in a secure key storage slot. Um, two is we use the monotonic counter, which allows us to count pin attempts. And we automatically brick the device after 21 pin attempts. Um, and three, we put in actually a factory key so that we could do some kind of supply chain integrity check when you first set up Passport which there was a whole thing with Trezor a week or so ago where, you know, people putting like, um, like fake Trezors into the supply chain, but you'd have no idea. And it's just running malicious firmware. There's no way to do any kind of supply chain check to make sure it's actually a factory genuine, you know, Trezor. So Passport does have that capability. But like I said, it's all open source. So we also have a really cool thing called an avalanche noise source. We're the only ones in the industry to do this. It's a true random number generator, which really helps when you create a seed, right? You need to have a good source of entropy, but it is um, made only with resistors and capacitors, which means you can visually inspect it like on the circuit board or you can x-ray it or whatever. So we're not relying on the black box random number generators that you find inside of the different chips, which is what everyone else does. Give so, people a sense on why the random number generator is important. I, I think that's a, you know, a deep, a deep yeah. concept for many people. Yeah, it is. And basically, like, when you generate your seed, when the hardware wallet generates your seed, it has to have a source of randomness, right? You're basically uh, converting random numbers into a seed phrase. And so if your source of randomness is not actually random, whether there's a bug in your code, which has happened, you know, multiple, probably several times within the crypto space, or if, you know, you're using the random number generator that's just running on your chip because like every modern chip, the secure element, the main processor, they all ship with what are called true random number generators. You're just trusting that, you know, so you're basically trusting the chip manufacturer that it's actually random. So us having this really cool open source hardware, true random number generator, I, I mean, it's, it's not perfect necessarily because you're still kind of trusting us there, but um. I think it's really cool that we have it and, and no one else does. Um, but I'm, I'm biased there. Yeah. So one of the things that the ledger team said is uh, because it's a secure element that they're not able to open source it. How have you been yes. able to open source a secure well, this element? Is, this is the terminology issue in the space. And I'm actually going to be writing probably a very in-depth blog post about this because the term secure element can mean so many different things. So I know I've intentionally in this conversation not called Ledger's chip a secure element. I've called it a security chip. Maybe a better way to call it would be like a, sec a security processor or a secure mm -hmm. processor because it's running a full operating system on the processor. They, they basically have two processors in the Ledger devices. They have like the non-secure processor and then they have the secure processor. And the secure processor, like I mentioned, is a black box, but it 
It's a chip. It's executing code. They have a whole operating system that is running and you can't see any of it. You can't go on their GitHub and see anything. We are our secure element and the same secure element that's used by cold card and Bitbox. It's by, it's a part by microchip. It's like a really cheap prevalent part. I mean, they probably ship like probably hundreds of millions of this every year. It's the same thing that's used in like printer cartridges and other stuff for like supply chain integrity. There's a lot of different things you can do with it, but basically it's a dumb secure element. The whole point is that they have some slots that you can store keys on and they have some features, like I mentioned, like counters and stuff like that, but there's no code that, that we have mm -hmm. running on it. There's no code. Like we're, we're using it to augment passport security instead of running the OS on it. So like we're you we're storing a little some keys in some of the slots and we're using the counter. But what that does is if that chip is honest, it augments passport security. It means that now if you want to extract the seed from passport, you got to do some exotic lab-based laser attack trying to grind down the top of the chip and shine lasers at it and trying to extract stuff from it. Um, and it gives you really good hardware security. If the chip is not honest, let's say, you know, the manufacturer is malicious, it doesn't do anything because we're not relying on it for signing or running the OS or anything. So like at best, it's augmenting passport security. At worst, it's not adding any security. Um, the data, the full data sheet for that part is, does require an NDA, but there's been a, there's a pretty lengthy data sheet that does not, that you could just download from their website. Additionally, there, people have leaked the, <laughs> the data sheet that is NDA'd. So um, I would argue that it's equivalent to using any processor. Like you, you use a normal processor in a hardware wallet, like what Trezor does, an STM32 processor. You know, we use that as well. A different, a different variant, but the same general family. You know, it has a data sheet. All chips are black boxes, you know, so you're always trusting that the chip is going to like run your code properly. So like I said, nothing is perfect, but every single piece of code that is running on Passport is fully open source. You know, it's on our GitHub. And if you're hardcore enough, you could like build it from source and you can in install your own firmware. If you're really hardcore, you could like download the PCB schematics and pay someone to make it the circuit board for you and you know, build your own. You just wouldn't get the supply chain key, of course, because you'd be setting it up yourself. So that does that help a little bit understand? It's like there, there's like the dumb secure element with just like the slots that's just hard to break into. And then there's like the full featured security chip. And I think we really need to use different terminology. I think mm -hmm. Ledger uses the secure element terminology because I think it obfuscates kind of what's actually happening that it, this is a full featured processor running a full operating system. So in a sense, if you were to, to differentiate uh, Passport's security from Trezor, uh, you have a secure element, so it's not, or it's less susceptible to a physical-based attack if the attacker it, has the device. Massively raises the cost of a physical attack. So if, if you had, if you had a, a Passport on a table and a Trezor on a table, right? If you grab that Trezor, you are going to be able to extract those keys in like 15 minutes or less with a hundred bucks worth of hardware. And you're going to be able to get everything off. You, you're, you, there's nothing destructive you have to do to the circuit board. You just pry open that enclosure and you just hook up some wires to the circuit board or to the processor. And you have a hundred percent certainty that you are, you are extracting that, that seed. Right. And then 
if you do that without the person knowing right away, and then that person has a passphrase, you can just try to brute force that passphrase. And the more time you have without the person moving the funds off of that seed, the more time you have to brute force the passphrase. On a passport, you have to rip apart the device. You have to rip apart the circuit board. You have to take that thing to a more sophisticated lab. You have to grind off layers of the secure element. Hope you don't break it when you're doing that. And then you have to start shooting lasers at the thing. Um, and so you have a high likelihood of destroying the device. You require hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of equipment, not a hundred dollars worth of equipment. And you have to have possession of it for much longer as well. And you could still put a passphrase on if you want, or use multi-sig or something. Right. And so I think, you know, that's, that's the major difference. And, and I say like, no, nothing is foolproof. We could do, we could keep adding things to the passport security model, like cold card, you know, their models now have two secure elements by two different manufacturers. So you could throw more secure elements <laughs> at it. Uh, I'm sure, I think in a future version of Passport, we'll probably do some cool anti-tamper stuff where you, as soon as you pry open the enclosure, bam, right? Everything gets, gets bricked. But like you can keep adding layers, but at some point you're always going to be able to, there's, there's a cost to an attack, right? But I think just having that physical security, having a very high probability of destroying the device if you're trying to get it apart, I mean, massively better than anything you'd get from like Trezor or like the Trezor clones, right? Like the keep keys. I don't know if anyone still buys keep keys, but there's some other hardware wallets that are like Trezor clones that are basically have like the same security model, which is no security model. And I, and I think a concept here that, that people should understand is it's not like something is binary secure or not. It's, it's no. just how uh, expensive and difficult and certain it is that you can attack this device. Um, exactly. It's so a cost. We, Everything has like a cost of attack, right? We talk a lot about, uh, you, you know, government and nation states and them being kind of an adversary to protect against. I mean, do you think that's realistic given this discussion? Like, they, you know, the government could come and knock on your door, take your device, and they'll be able to afford the hundred, two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars to to uh, crack into it. I mean, I think so, but I think one, it's not purely money because like I said, I think there's a very high probability of dis destroying the data, you know, if they, if they try to break into the into the device. So that's one thing. Um, two is you could still use like a passphrase or something, right? Three is you have plenty of time. So you could like move the funds or you can use multi-sig. So I think there's a, an array of things that can give you more protection, but I think you know, as we continue to ship new generations of hardware over the coming years, we're going to keep trying to make it harder and harder, right, for a motivated attacker to get in. But I think if you want to protect your your Bitcoin or crypto from like a nation state type attacker, I think you totally can do so, you know, at this point. I think it's, it's as easy as, at least in the Bitcoin world, it's as easy as doing multi-sig or putting a really strong passphrase on and then you're not going to be able to brute force that, Um and then I think, like I said, as 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 devices get more sophisticated, as more anti-tamper features are introduced, um, it just keeps making it harder and harder where, you know, you start to think about like, um, you know, think about like an iPhone is a great example, right? Like, you know, Apple's, there, there's always exploits for iPhones, but they're always trying to keep up and patch them as you go. They've, they've introduced uh, more advanced modes for like dissonance and targeted individuals to use. They have... You know, um, 
you know, they, uh, they refused to cooperate with like the FBI famously some number of years ago. So like, it's, it's always like a, it's always like a race, you know, but I, I do think it's definitely possible even today to, pr- to fully protect yourself against like a, a nation state actor. That's, that's actually very heartening to hear. Um, if, if a nation state came knocking on the door of foundation, uh, what could you give them that would help them uh, acquire someone's device? I mean, you mentioned everything's open source, but I'm wondering if there is something else that they could extract from you. No, I mean, why would they even need to knock on our door? All the code is open source, right? So like, like I said, we our, our, our customer records automatically purge after 60 days because um, we need to wait like a month or two after shipping in case you have like an issue or a return or, or anything like that. Um, so there's, they can't really get any, they would only be able to get customer data from us for the last 60 days. Not that we would even want to give that up, right? I'm sure it'd be like fight in court. And by the time we did it, it would probably all be purged, but um, I don't know. So that's one aspect is the customer data. But in terms of devices, I mean, unless like gun to our head trying to get, let's say gun to our head, they, you know, they said you have to, you know, uh, put a backdoor in the firmware, right? So a couple of things there. One is we don't just sign our firmware from one key. We actually sign our firmware from, I think, sorry, we have a two of four signature setup. So you'd have to put gun to the head on multiple founders at the same time, which is kind of fun. I think we're the only ones that don't just have one firmware key. Like we, you know, we sign our firmware with a, with a two of four uh, setup. So you'd have to like get, get us to like, you know, do it together. Uh, but secondly, everything's open source. So like, all it takes is one person to see that either a like our build on firmware no longer like the hash of it because it's all reproducible like no longer matches the build that's on our GitHub right. So if you if you go to install firmware update and you see the hat you could you, you could download it check the hash if that doesn't match the hash that we published like okay that's that's bad. All it takes is one person to see that and we have a lot of users that are hardcore and building from source <laughs> and tweeting about it and there's websites like wallet scrutiny that are like rating each version of our firmware to make sure it's reproducible. So like it would get caught right away. So like it would be really hard for us to like introduce something like that without customers seeing it. Um, And I think that's like the beauty of open source. You know, you contrast that to ledger, you never, you never know what's going into the, into the firmware with any release. They could be putting anything they want into the firmware. You'd have absolutely you know, no idea. Yeah, and I think as we're we're all sort of discovering that, um, I wanted to touch a bit on kind of the Bitcoin only nature of Passport and get your thoughts on two things. Uh, yeah. One, does being Bitcoin only add anything meaningful to the security of the device? Uh, and then two, are there any plans to expand beyond Bitcoin? I have a lot of folks in the Monero community who would love to have Monero on <laughs> Passport. Yeah, so a couple of things there. One is, I think that, the attack surface argument is quite valid in the sense that, you know, device can only can do fewer functions is more focused. You know, you have less of an attack surface and that kind of thing. So I would probably make the argument that it's more secure to store your Bitcoin on a device that only does Bitcoin. I think that's pretty nuanced though. I mean, if you could really demonstrate that apps running on the device were properly sandboxed, with like an open source operating system, maybe it would be okay. But like Ledger can't demonstrate that because it's all closed source. You can see the apps, but you don't know what's happening on the back end. you know, with kind of 
um, managing like the, the apps, which is the OS, which is closed. So I would say overall, yes, it probably, you know, is, is more secure to have something if you're want your Bitcoin only device, right. That it, you know, lower or, or less of an attack surface. Um, I think there's a focus element for us as well. You know, we're a small team still we're early. Um, what we've seen and one of the reasons why we started the company is the main hardware wallet companies had fallen behind in terms of keeping up with the Bitcoin space, you know, Trezor Ledger provided totally crap multi-sig experiences. Um, PSBTs, partially signed Bitcoin transactions, is a fantastic standard to be able to have a universal transaction format that you can, especially if you're doing multi-sig, you can pass around to different devices and each device can add a signature. There was no support for that with Ledger or Trezor. And so when we started the company, it was about providing this best-in-class Bitcoin experience that the other devices just couldn't you know, provide. And I think We've done a really good job doing that and also being broadly compatible with like every single popular Bitcoin software wallet, not just our mobile app Envoy, but like Sparrow, Electrum, Bitcoin Core, Spectre, Blue Wallet, Nunchuck. Like I can just list all of them. Passport is compatible really in a really good way with all of them, not like in a crappy way to check a box. Um, it is open source. There is actually... <laughs> Uh, an effort right now to do a Monero firmware uh, for Passport, um, a fully open source effort that is not officially sanctioned by the company. Hilariously, one of our employees, actually a one of our firmware engineers decided to start the repo <laughs> on like a Friday night <laughs> without even asking anyone in the company. And I don't really care, right? That's, that's good. That's open source. You know, there's, there's actually, there's actually an effort. I, I suspect it will come to fruition and then we would have to make the decision if as a company we would officially support it. I mean, probably we would just allow like a like a Monero version of the firmware to be out there. And as long as it's open source and there's a lot of eyes on it, that'd be so cool if our customers could, you know, um, could just install that on their passports. Um, in regards to the roadmap, I don't really talk about, you know, roadmap and, and, and that kind of thing um, in, in, you know, in podcasts or in any other forum. I would say that, you know, we, we consider ourselves like a, a Bitcoin centric company. And um, I think that focus is very important to us. Um, so I can't really comment on, on future plans, but we also have hope to be making other types of devices and other categories of devices besides just hardware wallets. So we're working on a lot of stuff, you know, behind the scenes. That's awesome. And I, and I can say, you know, as a huge Monero fan myself, if, if that ever comes to fruition, um, you know, call me up. I'll do the best I can to get as many uh, of your devices into Monero people. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. The other thing I would say too is like, I consider myself a Bitcoin maxi. And I think that's become like a derogatory term um, for some reason. But I think I think what what's happened with a lot of Bitcoiners, and we talk about this a lot internally, and Seth and I talk about this too a lot, is that Bitcoin. It's important that people remember Bitcoin is is not the why. Like Bitcoin is one of the tools we have, yeah. and I would argue Bitcoin is the best tool we have, or the most important tool we have to achieve sovereignty, freedom, maybe even a separation of money and state ultimately. There are there is some camp in Bitcoin world that thinks Bitcoin is like the why, like <laughs> it's like a circular thing. It's really weird, um, and I don't really get it. I think, I think it's so important that you know that if you're a company in this space, 
your values are sovereignty and freedom and privacy ideally. But I think that rolls up to, you know, and under those, those two umbrella values, because like we talked about ledger, that doesn't really have the ethos that, that matches my ethos or the ethos of so many in the space. You know, I think there's this huge tension within our industry of, is it going in like the sovereignty and self custody direction, or is it all going to just become so centralized that, um, it basically our current system just eats it all up and everyone's just using custodial Bitcoin custodial lightning, which I think is an enormous problem. Everyone's cheering about lightning, even though the vast majority of it is, is custodial in nature. I think all those are huge problems. And so um, I think it's really important, you know, that, um, that any company in the space is, is thinking about Bitcoin not as the why or the reason to exist, but as the as the tool. And I think we still have so much work just to get the Bitcoin self custody um, products easy enough for for everyday people to use. You know, it's a, it's gonna be really hard. I think there was a lot of wisdom in what you said. I know we're coming up against the hour, so I think that's a, actually a fantastic place uh, for us to kind of leave the, the community with. Is there anything else, Zach, before we close that you want to share or we didn't get to and you thought was important yeah. for folks to hear? There's only one thing I would add about our products. So I think we covered Passport pretty well, um, but we actually just expanded our mobile app, Envoy. It's feature set to now be a... Um, it's its own mobile wallet. So for the first time we have a mobile app that you can download that without having to, you know, buy a passport to use it. And as I talked about a second ago about trying to make it easier for people to self custody their own Bitcoin um, Envoy, I would say is probably the easiest app to set up to go up and running with a self custody mobile wallet, you know, a hot wallet, obviously. So caveat, like don't put too much money in there. Right. But we actually, um, we, we have this thing called magic backups where we do store your seed on the secure element on your phone, which is automatically backed up to iCloud Keychain or Android Auto Backup, which is end-to-end -end encrypted. Um, and then we store a backup of all the stuff on the app, like labels and settings that's encrypted by your seed. So it's really cool because you get like a 60-second onboarding experience, but if you lose your phone or anything like that, you can like restore everything to exactly how it is. And everything is end to end encrypted and it's all open source. So if you do have, want to check it out, or if you have like a friend or family member that is really scared of like Bitcoin self custody, you can check it out our Envoy app and have them try out like magic backups. I think it's a really, really transformative uh, user experience that also preserves your privacy. No user accounts can all be done over tour and, and so on. So very early for us with that update. We just shipped it last week, but you'll probably be hearing a lot from us about that. That's fantastic. Well, Zach, I've appreciated just the, the depth of your technical knowledge and your perspective, but more than those two, the principles that you bring into the Thank space. You. And I think that's very important for us. Uh, for folks who were, who were here, uh, Sukar and Hi, I know you popped in a little bit late. Uh, thank you for joining in. Thank you for, for listening. Um, if you want to hear more content like this, please like and subscribe. We like to go deeper, talk to the people who are actually building the product and get to know them a little bit better. Um, with that, have a wonderful day and we'll see you all later. Cheers.